scripture this evening is taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Acts chapter 4, 29 through 31. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. It's good to see each of you here tonight. We're very grateful for your presence. We're thankful for a beautiful day, the opportunity to be together, to worship God in spirit and in truth. We have a number of people that are away. It is summertime, but even though summertime is here, and typically we associate summertime with rest and vacation, we don't want to forget about the Lord. And so if someone that you know is not here, and you don't know why they are not here, I would encourage you to call them, contact them, and encourage them to be here, because we want to do everything that we can to encourage one another so that one day we can spend eternity in heaven. We're going to be looking at Acts chapters 3 and 4, some excerpts from these two chapters in just a moment. Before we do so, I do want to welcome those of you who are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you may have. It may be that you're looking for a church home. We would encourage you to consider the work here. I know that the elders here would be more than happy to sit down and talk to you about the opportunities for service in this congregation. Tonight we're going to be talking about marks of a great church. What is it that makes a church great? Well, when we look back to the first century, we find that there was just one church. And that church was the church that our Lord and Savior built and purchased with his own blood, according to Acts chapter 20 at verse 28. When we read of those early Christians, those early saints who comprised the church of Almighty God, there were some factors that led to the church of Christ in the first century being a strong and mighty institution. What we want to do is take those positive traits that they manifested in the first century and incorporate them into the very fabric of our spiritual lives. Because we as God's people, we are the church. We are the temple of God. We belong to the Lord. And our purpose here upon this earth is to bring honor and glory to God. And Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3 at verse 21 that God is glorified in the church. And so with that in mind, I want us to think for just a few moments about some marks of a great congregation. What is it that would make us a great congregation in the eyes of God? Now bear in mind when we look at Acts chapters 3 and 4 and we think about the church here, we're talking about the church that had its beginning in the city of Jerusalem because the Lord had died on Calvary's cross and had ultimately ascended to heaven, took a seat at the Father's right hand. And some 50 days later, we read of the birth of the church that had been planned and prophesied of centuries earlier. And you can read about that in the second chapter of the book of Acts where some 3,000 souls yielded obedience to the gospel of Christ and then from that point in time forward, you read of a flourishing church, that is, a flourishing church that had been 
ultimately purchased by a loving God. Well, note first of all the fact that when we look at the early church, we see that God's people were a persecuted people. And so we're going to talk about, first of all, their persecution, their suffering. And there were some reasons why in Acts chapter 4, God's people were being persecuted as a congregation of people. Now, the basis for this persecution goes back to Acts chapter 3. Some events that occurred outside the temple in the city of Jerusalem. There was a man that had been laid at the entrance to the temple. The Bible tells us that he had been lame from birth. Peter and John, they had come to the temple and they saw this man that had been lame from his mother's womb. And the Bible says that he had been asking alms. He was a beggar. He had been asking alms of the people who came to the temple. Well, when Peter saw him, Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Well, you can read in Acts chapter 3 where this man that had been lame, that rather had been lame from his mother's womb, from birth, you will read where he leaped up and began to walk. A great miracle had occurred. And so the basis for their persecution, the basis for their suffering, was this charitable deed that had been done by Peter and John. But then also, in connection with this, I want to I just stress to you the boldness that the early church demonstrated in the face of persecution. Now, once Peter and John healed this man, what they really did was set off a firestorm. The Jewish leaders in the first century, they were enraged at what had happened. The church, as you well know, was born on Pentecost Day. And from that time forward, it began to grow and to flourish. Many, many people were being added to the body of Christ. Well, there were many Jews that were resistant to the church of our Lord, particularly to those who were preaching a resurrected Christ. And so in Acts chapter 4, we find Peter and John literally being called on the carpet for the events that occurred that had occurred outside the temple in the city of Jerusalem. The religious leaders of that day and time, they wanted to know, by what power or what name have you done this in chapter 4 at verse 7? Well, Peter and John, they proceed to tell them exactly how this great miracle had occurred. Note, if you would, what is said beginning in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to this helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. So, when they responded to these, these religious leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin, they were basically saying that the events that had occurred, the healing of this man, if you want to, if you want to attribute 
this healing to someone, then attribute it to the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the very one that you crucified. Now that was an indictment to these people. Well, what about the boldness that these men demonstrated in the face of persecution? What about how they reacted to their tormentors? Let me give you a couple of reasons why I believe these men and the church in general was so bold in the face of persecution. Two reasons. Number one, I believe was because of their connection to Jesus. Now you just think about it. Peter and John, these men were apostles. They had spent some three plus years with the Lord Jesus Christ and they had seen firsthand what Jesus of Nazareth had done in the lives of people. Not only had they seen the great miracles that he had wrought among so many people, but they had the opportunity to hear him preach and teach on numerous occasions. They were, they were men that had spent quality time with the Son of God. And so with that in mind, drop down and look at verse 13. In verse 13, the Bible says that when they, that is the religious leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with whom? With Jesus. Do you see how much of an impression Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had made on these men? We talk about boldness in the face of persecution. Jesus, during his earthly ministry back in John 15, verse 20, Jesus had this to say to the apostles, and really in chapters 14 through 16, he is speaking primarily to the apostles. And he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had laid the foundation that, look, if you're going to be a follower of mine, persecution, tribulation, suffering, it's coming. It's going to be a reality. Well, these men, they understood that. They had the background information necessary to meet the opponents before them. But one of the reasons that they were so bold in the face of persecution, I believe, is because they had a connection to Jesus. Their faith was literally unshakable. And so that leads us to a second, I think, a second reason why they were so bold. And that is not only do we read of their connection to Jesus, but their conviction in Jesus. When we talk about conviction, we're talking about the faith that lies deeply within us. Now, there are, various, there are various degrees of faith. Some people have little faith. Some people, however, have great faith. I believe that these men, and I think in particular when we talk about the church of the first century, we're talking about people that had rock-solid faith in Almighty God. How do I know that? Well, just look at the events as they unfold before us. In verse 14, after having realized that these men had been with Jesus, the Bible says, and seeing the, man who, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. 
But when they had commanded them to go, up, to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, that's a pretty strong rebuke. Wouldn't you agree? These men have been called on the carpet of the religious leaders of that day and time, and they are being threatened. They are being commanded not to speak one word in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Here's what Peter and John said in response to this charge or this admonition. Whether it is, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Now listen. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. How deep was their faith? How convicted were they? Let me tell you what, when we talk about faith, and the faith that these men demonstrated in the first century, it's something to admire. Now, the only way that you and I, as the people of God, and we are the church of God, the only way that we're going to have the kind of faith that they had in the first century is to spend some time with the Lord Jesus. Now, we're not going to be able to physically associate with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to be able to sit down and have a meal with Him. We're not going to be able to bow down in prayer to God the Father with the Lord Jesus Christ at our side physically speaking. We're not going to be able to talk to Him physically. But we can read and learn about Jesus Christ. We can grow closer to Him on a daily basis by spending time in His Word. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You want to know more about Jesus? You want to become more like Jesus? You want to, you want to become more deeply convicted of Jesus of Nazareth? Then spend time in His Word. You're not going to be close to the Lord. You're not, going to, you're not going to be a person of deep-seated conviction if you don't spend time in this book. There's just no way around it. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Saturate your life with the principles that are set forth in the Scriptures. And once you do that, guess what? You're going to have conviction. Now look again at Peter and John. Here they were. They were they were commanded not to speak at all in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Peter and John responded by saying, We cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. When is the last time you met somebody who was a child of God, who in the face of persecution said, Look, I don't know what you think, but here's what I think. And here's what I believe. And I'm not going to recant, I'm not going to back up, I'm not going to back off what I believe in the Lord. We talk about rock-solid conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the church is going to be great, we're going to have to be people who spend time in the Word of God. There's going to have to be a connection with the Lord. 
And the only way we can achieve that connection is by spending time in His Word. Once we, once we make that connection, what's going to happen? We're going to develop some conviction. Look at the lives of the, of the apostles. Why do you think they were so willing to face persecution head on? Why do you think they were so willing to die for the cause of Christ? I believe it's because they deeply believed in the resurrected Christ. And the only way the church today can be great in the eyes of God is if we too develop that same kind of conviction. Now, secondly, we talk about their persecution. But then also Luke tells us about their prayer. That is, their supplication to God. Here these men, they've been threatened not to preach, not to teach in the name of Christ. They're out, I guess we would say, rattling chains. And they're causing quite a stir among people, particularly the religious leaders. But that stir is not without results. Note, if you would, what is said in Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the disciples, or the number of the men, came to about 5,000. What, what was happening? Even though God's people were being persecuted, they were still preaching, they were still teaching, and guess what was occurring? Growth. The church of our Lord was growing and abounding. It was multiplying. Why? Because people were hearing the gospel, believing it, and obeying it. Well, what about their prayer? Now, sometimes when, when we're faced with, with trial or tribulation, when we're faced with persecution, what happens? Well, some of us, we have a pity party. In other words, we, we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. Sometimes we go to God and we ask God to remove that thorn in the flesh or that, that persecutor from our midst. But note, if you would... What these men and what the church of our Lord did in the face of persecution. The Bible says they prayed to God. And they were very specific in their prayer to God. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 23. The text tells us that after having been let go, they went back to their companions and basically gave a report of all of the events that occurred. Now look at verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Again, we talk about this, this deep-seated conviction that these men had in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about the conviction of the early church, to whom did they turn? They, they turned to the Lord God. That's where their faith rested. And so, verse 25, Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now look, Lord, on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness 
they may speak your word. Of all of the things that they could have prayed for, what did they pray for? Boldness. Of all of the things that, that these saints could have been praying for, in this particular situ situation, they prayed for boldness to proclaim the word of God. I don't think that they were necessarily concerned about their physical welfare. I don't think they were necessarily concerned about the fact that there were people out here that were extremely upset, somewhat vindictive, ready to hurl any kind, any number of insults upon them for their faith and fidelity in God. And yet here these, here these people, they're praying for boldness to proclaim the word of God. Had you, been a, had you been in that same situation, what would you have done? For what would you have prayed? It's interesting to me that when, when you read the writings of Paul, for example, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul is in prison. It's one of Paul's four prison epistles. He wrote the book of Colossians in about A.D. 62. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he said, Continue steadfastly in prayer, watching therein with thanksgiving. And in that context, Paul is encouraging these saints to pray to Jehovah God. And then, in that very context... He wants them to pray for what? That a door of opportunity might be opened for him to what? To share the word of God. These guys were so focused on taking the gospel to the world. Their physical well-being and their physical welfare was secondary. It was all about serving the Lord. No wonder Paul would say, for we preach Christ Jesus, our Lord. We don't preach ourselves, but rather we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. These people were willing to lay it all on the line for the advancement of the cause of Christ. I said just a moment ago that when you look at the life of Paul, you see that Paul was a praying man, that he was prayerful that doors would be opened, that the gospel could be furthered. Go back and look at when Paul and Silas were in, in prison in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. They had been beaten. Their feet had been fastened in stocks. The Bible says at midnight, what did they do? They prayed and sang praises to God. Now, does it say this in the text? And this is just my surmising here. When you look at the body of work of the Apostle Paul, the passage I cited a moment ago in Colossians chapter 4, when Paul is in prison and he's praying that a door of opportunity might be opened, that he might share the word of God. Isn't it interesting that following that prayer by Paul and Silas, an earthquake occurred and what happened? He and Silas had the opportunity to share the gospel of Christ with the Philippian jailer. These people were intent on sharing the word of God. When we talk about being a strong and great church in the eyes of God, we have to be a praying body of believers. 
And I, I certainly believe that God wants us to pray and that there are needs and wants that we ourselves have. But we dare not be selfish to the point that we forget about praying that God would open doors of opportunity for us to share the gospel of Christ. That we might take the gospel to the world. Look at the church in the first century. What made them great? Well, they were persecuted. They were praying. And their prayers were very specific. Not only were they specific in their prayer to God, but they were strengthened by prayer to God. How do I know that? Well, note if you would verse 31. In verse 31, the Bible says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, we understand that in the first century, there was the miraculous that was ongoing. And we talk about the apostles and the fact that they had received that baptismal measure, the Holy Spirit. Well, you and I today, we are strengthened by prayer. We are strengthened by our study of the Word of God. There is power in prayer. These individuals were strengthened as a result of praying to Jehovah God. Why do you think they were able to execute the very prayer that they had prayed? Because the Lord honored their prayer. The Bible says they spoke the word of God with all boldness. How did they do that? How were they able to accomplish this? Because they had prayed to God. They were equipped. They were strengthened. And thus they were ready to go back out into the world and proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to a lost and dying world. There's a third thing I want you to see in looking at Acts chapter 4. And that is their preaching. The fact that these people were seed sowers. Go back again and note what is said in verse 31. Well, look again at verse 29. In verse 29, they had prayed that with all boldness they might speak God's word. The latter part of verse 31 says, They spoke the word of God with boldness. First of all, I want you to think with me about their faith in God. Go back again and look. Here were people that had been with Jesus. Here were people that had been commanded not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And yet Peter and John said, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Their faith in Jehovah God, as I said earlier, was very deep. They were people of conviction. Because of their great faith in God, and again, we can look at verse 31, when they had prayed, we think about this collective group of people assembled together. Their great faith in God led to their fearlessness on behalf of God. In verse 31, the Bible says, they spoke the word of God with all boldness. What is it that makes the church great? What makes the church great is that her members, comprised of people like you and me, have such conviction of heart, such deep faith in the Lord, 
that we are fearless in our presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we're willing to speak boldly in the name of Christ, come what may, without fear and without favor. When you look at Paul in his last letter to Timothy, Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Paul went on to say that the time would come when men would not endure sound doctrine. Now, you and I, we live in a great country. But the country in which you and I live is changing rapidly. This is not your grandparents' country. It's not my grandparents' country in many respects. And God only knows what this country will be 50 years from now if it remains. There are seeds of, it, of infidelity that have been sown all across this great country. And there are a lot of people today that are very vocal in their opposition to Christianity. In spite of all of that, I really believe that there are still people who possess honest and good hearts in our country and in our world. We have the opportunity to share the gospel of Christ with a lost and dying world, with a lost and dying nation. Our country tonight needs the gospel of Christ. The world in which we live today needs the gospel of Christ. If we as God's people, as members of the body of Christ, if we do not share the gospel with our friends, our family members, our neighbors, whether it be our co-workers, our peers, our fellow students, whomever it may be, if we do not share the gospel of Christ with those around us, pray tell who will. Now the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This world is engulfed in spiritual darkness. The nation in which we live, it is engulfed in spiritual darkness. It is a nation that is depraved in many respects. Who then is going to be the salt of this earth? You are. I am. Who is going to be the light of the world? You are. And I am. Now let me just say this. In our pluralistic society, in light of everything that is coming down the pike, we better start praying to Jehovah God that he will bless us with the boldness to stand up and speak up on his behalf. If you want to know what, if you want to know what persecution is like, just step outside the walls of this building and start talking to your friends and neighbors about the Lord Jesus Christ. Start talking to people across this country about the fact that without Jesus Christ, you are lost and dying and headed for it for a devil's hell. Tell people that. Tell people that the only way to be saved 
is in Christ Jesus. And you're going to face some opposition. You see, Luke tells us back in verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In our pluralistic society today, today, we have people in high places that have bought into the idea that you can be saved by any and every one. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter about the God you serve. Well, let me tell you what. If you believe the Bible, it does. And if the church of Christ is going to be great in the eyes of God as we speak, we're going to have to start standing up in the midst of a pluralistic society and telling people there's only one way to be saved. You start talking to people about the salvation of their eternal soul. You've got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You've got to repent. Did you know that there are a lot of people in our world today that this idea of repentance is a forgotten term? We have individuals today that get caught up in an ungodly lifestyle and they want to go to some clinic. They want to go to some facility, spend some 30 days there and come out and act as if nothing ever happened. Whatever happened to godly repentance? Talking to people about coming clean with what they've done and then confessing the name of Christ before others. To stand up in public and to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Think about the foundation of our, of our country. It was built upon God. And yet I dare say that if you were, go, if you were to go to Washington, D.C. and start talking about the exclusiveness of Christianity and Almighty God, there would be some lawmakers in our, in our nation that would be horrified. Well, let them be horrified. We need to stand up and say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then people have to be baptized into Christ. I know what denominations teach. Denominations teach that baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now you want to create some waves in this community and in this society, start telling people that unless you're baptized into Christ, you are still in sin. Well, that's what the Bible says. We talk about being a great congregation in the eyes of God. If we're going to be great, we're going to have to stand up and fearlessly preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talk about the one church. The Bible says there's just one church. The world says it doesn't matter. I would, I would encourage you this week to talk to somebody about the church. Just sit down and ask somebody what they think about the church. Is it important? Is it relevant? 
Is it necessary to salvation? You'd be surprised at the number of people that will tell you that all you have to do is have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about being affiliated with the church. There are a lot of people that will tell you it doesn't matter what church you go to. Well, the Bible says there's just one church. How do I know that? Ephesians 4 verse 4, there's one body. And one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. What is the church? He's the head of the body of the church. Colossians 1, verse 18. When we talk about the first century saints, they had faith in God and they were fearless in their presentation of the word of God. If we're going to be the church that, that our God would have us to be, we're going to have to be fearless in our presentation of the Word of God. Now, does that mean that we want to be caustic and arrogant and ugly in our presentation of truth? Absolutely not. Paul said we speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, verse 15. But we have to speak the truth. And if the church of our Lord is going to grow, guess what? We're going to have to become sowers of the seed which is as Jesus said in Luke 8 11, the word of God is it possible that the church today as you and I know it is not growing in many sectors of our society because we as members of the body of Christ lack number one a connection to Christ and number two conviction in Christ if we have deep Seated conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no way that we're going to back up or back off in our belief of the Lord and what He can do in the lives of people. Look at what was said in Acts chapter 17 when Paul and Silas went to the city of, the, of Thessalonica. The charge was made, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here too. When's the last time a congregation of God's people literally turned the city upside down where it resided? We talk about being a great church. If we're going to be a great church in the eyes of God, we've got to turn the community upside down for the cause of Christ. We've got to take seriously soul winning. We've got to think about the souls of people. Look at the apostles. Why do you think they were so, why do you think they were so intent on standing firm in the face of persecution? Because they understood that without boldness, without carrying this, this gospel message to the world, people were lost and dying in sin, and they stood in jeopardy of a devil's hell. That's just a fact of the matter. Do we have that same kind of belief system? Or have we become complacent and lukewarm in our feelings for the gospel? Fourthly and finally, note their possessions. It is said in verse 32 that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Talk about solidarity or unity. We talk about fellowship. These people were allied one with another. They stood together. And because of that, what did they do? They shared their goods and their possessions. They were benevolent. Did you know that as members of the body of Christ, we too are to be benevolent in our disposition toward one another and to the world? Note if you would what is said in verse 32. 
The multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. Here's what Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In verse 9 he said, Do not be weary in doing good. For we shall reap if we faint not. Let us as we have opportunity do good unto all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that we have to be benevolent toward one another. As Jesus said, I was hungry, and you did what? You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and in prison, you visited me. People that cared about one another. That is what took place in the first century. If the church today is going to be what the Lord would have it to be, if we're going to be great in the eyes of God, we have to care for one another. It's been said, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. We have to care about the souls of people. Well, what makes a church great? We've looked at the greatness of the church in the first century. And I really believe that we too, as God's people, we can be great in His eyes. If we'll take these traits, incorporate them into our own lives, and go out sharing the good news of the gospel. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. Why not come to Christ? Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Would you be willing to be baptized into Christ so that every sin could be washed away? Acts 22:16. And then would you live faithfully until death, knowing that God will bestow on you the crown of life? Revelation 2. At verse 10, if you're unfaithful, why not come home? Why not allow us to pray with you and for you and God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing?